hello, Millennium listeners. I'm very excited to be doing one of these really cool episodes that Alex and I have started. We're doing a series on some of the really cool people that have very interesting backgrounds. And we are so excited to to talk to Dr. Nerit Pisano today. She's the Chief Psychology Officer at Novi Labs. A little bit about Nerit. She's a licensed psychologist who's spent the past 20 years studying human emotions and behavior through the lens of clinical and developmental psychology. Nareet advises the Cognovi team on the emotional processes of underlying individual effective expressions and collective behavioral trends. She received her BA in psychology from Tufts University, graduating summa cum laude with the highest thesis honors. She earned her master's and doctorate in clinical psychology from the Derner Institute of Advanced Psychological Studies at Adelphi on Long Island. Dr. Prasanna completed her clinical training at Bellevue Hospital, Jacoby Medical Center, and Bright Bronx Psychiatric Center, and completed a postdoctoral fellowship at PACE at the university's counseling center. She currently works in private practice with psychoanalytic lens and specialization in trauma. And she's a published author as well. She has a book on intergenerational Holocaust trauma, as well as a number of related chapters and edited psychological volumes. And she's presented her research at interdisciplinary conferences in the U.S. and abroad. She has such an amazing background. I could probably go on for more. But uh, Nareet, Dr. Prasano, thank you so much for joining Millennium Live today. I'm very happy to have you here. Hey, Connor. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited to chat. Yeah, so let's dive right in. I Anybody who has listened to Millennium Live before in these types of episodes, we sort of like to get to know who you are and how it all started. So I want to sort of know where you grew up, you know, your parents, what, what may, maybe they did for a living and, and sort of what your growing up years were like for you. Sounds good. Yeah. So I was born in Jerusalem, in Israel. I was I'm the middle child of three children. My father at the time was an astrophysicist, my mother a teacher. We immigrated to the U.S. in 1990. I was seven years old. It was during the Gulf War. And, you know, there were a bunch of interesting firsts uh, when I arrived in the U.S. Learning English was one of them. Discovering snow, meeting my first African-American teacher. It was a very special time and intense time arriving in Oak Park, Illinois back in 1990. <laughs> yeah, it was, <laughs> so it was a lot to take in. And actually, my family ended up having a whole bunch of relocations after that pretty consistently. Um, so there was a lot of that kind of connecting and disconnecting and reconnecting with people. And I was young, right? So most of that kind of took place without my understanding of what that meant uh, in terms of my own emotional experience and also in context of my family history, which is that, you know, my grandparents are Holocaust survivors. My paternal grandmother has escaped from Nazi Germany on a kinder transport when she was also seven and also one of three kids. So there are these interesting parallels that I've spoken and written about in the past. She actually snagged one of two train tickets that the family had gotten their hands on for their three daughters. Aside from one of her sisters, the rest of the family was killed at Auschwitz. And then on my maternal side, my grandfather was born and raised in Amsterdam, and he went to school with Anne Frank. So he escaped through his Swiss passport. And throughout my life, you know, we recognize kind of the value of 
this passport, kind of growing up, speaking three languages, having three passports, it's kind of, you know, this insurance policy for us if history were to repeat itself. And so we, we really felt that history kind of playing out in present time. Yeah, that's kind of the starting point. My grandfather is, I think, the last living classmate of Anne Frank's. And, you know, it was just the 75th anniversary of the publication of her diary. So he's doing a lot of interviews on that. So it continues to be the family narrative. Wow, that is incredible. What a what a what a story. What a history. That's uh, Yeah. It's unbelievable. So it traveled uh very early on in your life uh, with I mean such a history and such a background in your family as it begins with. We'll we'll get to that. I want to I want to ask you more about that later on in the podcast, but so going to school, um, yeah. astrophysicist and teacher, so I'm sure education had a big and was a big uh, to do in in your household, um, did your your did your parents uh, stress like education as something that was very important, something to very take seriously, and something that was uh, the main focus in your house? Yeah, it got a lot of attention and a lot of focus. Absolutely, kind of this scientific family, right? And so a lot of discussions around the dinner table around current events and history and science versus religion. And there was a focus on kind of getting to this depth of understanding. And that has certainly resonated for me over time. And depth can mean different things, right? It can be knowledge of a certain topic. It can be kind of an intuitive, experiential kind of take, kind of uh, living with a topic. So, you know, it, it was understood in different ways amongst the different family members, but certainly a focus. Did you live, what it was in Indiana, you said, where you moved Illinois. to? Illinois. I'm to say, Illinois. Did you live in New York at all? Or did, did you go there for only when you went to Adelphi? Is, is that when you moved to New York? Yeah. So we moved to Oak Park, Illinois for two years. After that, we actually relocated to Los Angeles. So here we became kind of Cali kids and really <laughs> fully took on this identity, right? Because what's better than that? And a few years after that, three and a half years or four years after that, we, sh- we moved to La Jolla, actually, which is very close, you know, a couple hours away, but far enough that you really do have to start over uh, in a way. And then a few years after that, we relocated to New York. So by that point, it was we moved to New York for my senior year of high school. I went to Scarsdale High School for that one year before continuing to Tufts University for my undergrad. Wow. All right. So you definitely have traveled around <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. Is that difficult? Is that challenging to move around so much? Because here I am. I'm a New Yorker. I was born and raised. I I can I can say I'm I would love to leave and maybe experience a new place, but I'm so jaded. Here I am. I I still haven't left. I love New York. It would be really tough to leave a place like this and move somewhere mm-hmm. else. Did that affect you, like moving around so much, or did it give you a better perspective, especially where your history and your your family, where you're from? Uh, did that give you a better perspective on life? Of course, it affected me, Connor. <laughs> <laughs> I'm human, right? So it really kind of led to a full range of experience, right? I was I was angry about these moves. I was a really angsty teen, right? And I um, was absolutely thrilled about new challenges, new places, um, interacting in completely different environments, um, and getting that perspective. 
I was terrified. I was deeply connected. You know, there was such a range of experience. And I think it really gave me that starting point and that focus for my future work of, you know, loss and connection and that kind of emotional um, breadth that we can go through and how motivating and activating that can be. Yeah. Did that give you then an interest in psychology? So what what sort of sparked that interest? I mean, psychology, I, I think I think everybody at least either has or should have taken a psych 101 in <laughs> yeah. high school or something, something along the lines that they, you know, they know, they know the names of, you know, Sigmund Freud. And it's a very interesting subject of just to, you know, the study of the mind and how people think and react to things throughout mm-hmm. you know, throughout life. So what what sparked that? I know you, you studied psych at Tufts when you went there. Yes. Did you know you were going to study psychology going in? Yeah. So as you're saying, sort of the reality is that I've been kind of on that path for a long time and in the most personal way, right? Thinking about human experience and psychology and what influences us. Um, but I kind of formally started that education 20 years ago at Tufts, really focusing in on developmental psychology and, you know, how people evolve over the course of their lives. So my work was focused on infants and young children, kind of that earliest emotional learning where kids start to understand what they're feeling and what to expect and interacting with other people and what this means about their identity and their sense of self. I was super into it. I had keys to the, you know, Tufts Behavioral Development Labs, it was called at the time. And I, I essentially lived there. I mean, I was kind of living and breathing this stuff. And my first independent research at Tufts came through. Uh, it was called the Summer Scholars Fellowship. And later I got a public service grant. But it sounds really serious. But the project was a very playful one. Basically, it was asking whether kids will react to a bug in their ice cube. And it was awesome, right? I was essentially studying whether disgust is this innate emotion that exists exists from day one, or if it's something we kind of learn and acquire over time based on outside cues. And as it turned out in this study with four-year-olds, many did not feel disgust without social feedback that germs are indeed considered disgusting. Um, so that inclination hadn't kicked in yet, right? Not for all of them and, and definitely not reliably. So, but to your question over time, that experience continued to resonate for me, right? Because we all have that bug in an ice cube moment, right? And, you know, our responses will be different depending on our history and the current environment. So you might think, feel your, you know, contaminated drink is repulsive and be completely taken aback by it. Or you might be caught by surprise in a way that kind of triggers this vague anxiety, or maybe it gets you thinking about cleanliness and you become fixated or self-critical. At the end of the day, the bottom line is really that, you know, we all will react and respond and emote in some way or another. So that's where I really became interested in this kind of force of emotion and whether it's innate and hardwired or, you know, is it learned? Is it intergenerationally passed down? How does that work, right? Is it, does it have to be spoken or... Can it be silent? You know, all of those questions that followed. If I was a kid still, I would, I would probably think the bug in the ice cube is cool and kind of funny, (laughs) but um, yes, a lot. You're not alone. But I also would think it would definitely have a lot to do with, you know, your perspective and your past experiences and how you kind of judge that bug. So you knew right away after graduation or even during your time at Tufts, 
mm-hmm. that you wanted to further your education and yes. perhaps, you know, get, you know, get your master's, get your PhD in clinical psychology. So how did that, mm-hmm. how did choosing that path come about? It was um, a pretty clear path for me. I finished undergraduate and that fall I started my graduate program. You know, there was just more to learn and uh, wanting to really kind of dive into more of that human experience. I think one thing that I really didn't dive into in undergrad that was much more part of my graduate work was around kind of the unconscious mind and the formation mm-hmm. of identity based on all of that unconscious, implicit material. So I went to Derner Institute, which is part of Adelphi and has really this focus. It's kind of rooted in psychoanalytic theory and research. It's much more kind of psychodynamically oriented today, which sort of a lighter version of psychoanalysis, but it was a clear kind of path forward for me at that point in time. How did you get uh, the, the fellowship then afterwards at Pace? Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's fascinating, right? Because it became kind of a focus on those early attachment patterns. Again, not a kind of shock given where kind of my history, come, where my history is and where I come from. And then all of the defense mechanisms and resistance and transference experience, right? And it really drew me in um, because it has this focus around attending to your own internal process during a session. Um, So really using what comes up for you uh, in treatment as a key information about the patient's kind of past and present emotional experience. And I so value that approach, right? It's two-person kind of approach. Um, And it's very process-oriented. The content is important, but the process is really key. Again, so so fascinating to me. Uh, you know, we are making decisions consciously, but even more so, I think it's more fascinating too to think about it unconsciously and how we um how we do things, perhaps without even knowing that we are we're making the de- decisions based on how we feel at the time. We may not go back and and even remember some some of the some of the things that we've felt until later on, and then we can kind of digest them. So. I want to get into more now of like what you're doing and, and presently uh-huh. and, and your involvement as the chief psychology officer at Cognovi Labs. So just could you give us like a brief little rundown of Cognovi Labs? I know you, you, I think you joined probably right around the time I joined Millennium in 2018. So you've been there uh-huh. you know, almost for go on in five years soon. What um what has been your experience there? I know you it's a AI powered platform with dealing with emotions. <laughs> There's a lot to unpack. So could you give us a little rundown? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm, definitely. So Cognovi Labs is a technology company that sits at the intersection of deep machine learning on the one hand and then behavioral psychology on the other, and it integrates the two. Um, so as the chief psychology officer, I was brought in to really help build out the psychological framework Um, that we integrate with the machine learning and to bring that kind of emotional understanding um, of experience and and look at the kind of connection between emotion and action. So the technology was developed at Wright State University with funding from the Air Force, National Science Foundation, Department of Defense, 
it's been used in so many interesting ways. But, you know, one thing I wanted to share with you that not many people know outside of our team, and so this is really a Cognovi Millennium exclusive, but the co-founder and CEO of Cognovi, Benny Gradwell, is actually my dad. Um, when he brought me in five years ago, it was a super part-time consultant position to just weigh in on the emotions that were being measured and bring out, you know, build out this psychology piece. I was in private practice at the time, and I was about to accept this staff psychologist position at Pace. But here was this company, as he was describing it, that was collecting all of this online communication, like social media, discussion forums, blogs, and he had this real vision of measuring and understanding human emotion around different issues, different geolocations, and then somehow algorithmically mapping out that data to have some kinds of signals about where we should look and what's meaningful to people and where we might want to assist. I was completely intrigued and also unsure, right? Like how do we take kind of this complex human, <laughs> as we said, unconscious experience of emotion and put a number to it, right? But that wasn't new for us. That had been dinner table conversation for decades to kind of laugh at how we think so differently. Here's this PhD in astrophysics versus PhD in clinical psych. These like calculations and hard numbers and black holes versus emotions and mental health and all that good stuff. So it really, you know, the conversation between him and myself, it was a collision in a way of this kind of technology and humanity piece. I felt that stress there, that distance between the two, but it also kind of felt like a really important fit, right? And it has evolved into this very incredible synergy between that technology, that kind of scientific mathematical approach, and then this human emotion and process approach that come together. That is really cool. I mean, the concept is fascinating. And using the technology to figure out emotions, to me, that's, that's something I've never heard of before. And it's also kind of incredible. Your dad, he's definitely doing, uh, he's doing everything that he can, he can possibly do in this in this world as far as uh, being very successful. Yeah, he's had a fascinating past. And uh, he, you know, he has been in the finance world and leading large organizations and banks at very difficult times. And so he has his own, you know, story to tell. But here he is kind of doing this thing that, you know, really falls within his passion, as well as mine. And, you know, it's just an honor to be able to do that together. And what about your mom? Did, did, what was um, going back just a little bit about that? What subject was your was your mom a teacher of, and and perhaps at what level? Yeah, so in Israel, it's it's called rhythmica. It's um, kind of the rhythmics, music, um, and self expression through art. Oh, um, and so it was kind of also with young children. She actually went back to school as well uh, much later in life. I don't know if it was in her 40s or, or early 50s, but basically went back to school for school psychology. And so she currently works in that and does psychological assessments uh, with children and adults at um, WJCS here in Westchester. And she, um, you know, is delving into a lot of that kind of learning uh, assistance that people need and, and parsing out what that is and ways to support them. So uh, a lot of shared conversations there as well from kind of a different but connected angle. 
just want to just say how fascinating uh, just so far talking to you is and and just the amount of respect that that I have just for your family and how much you've been through in such a time is 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 kind of incredible. It's it's really fascinating to me. I want to mention your book because mm-hmm. I would love to, and I would love to get my hands on it if I can just to um just to continue the research and 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 my interest in in your fascinating background. How did you go about writing this and and how did you go about gathering stories and and researching Holocaust trauma, obviously, it's very, you're very connected. It's in, within your family. How did you mm-hmm. go about that? What what emotions um, did it did it arise? I kind of entered this very personal domain. It was my doctoral dissertation at first, and it evolved into my book. Um, but uh, you know, my grandmother spent most of her life sort of cautiously avoiding the details of her childhood experience. Right? Like, I can't tell you about that moment on that train platform when she parted from her parents or, and I can't tell you which orphanage she was raised in, you know, or how that shifted her perspective of the world. There were just, it's not because I wasn't interested or we weren't interested. There just were really no words. Somehow the language was, it felt like it would fail us. We couldn't kind of convey the trauma or the obscenity of it all. So we we avoided kind of asking and she avoided sharing much of the depth of it. And I think what I came to learn over time is that all that silence really did was kind of spotlight the unspoken pieces, right? And they have this kind of vague impact. They're hanging out over there nearby, but and we know they exist, but we don't really speak to them. So we don't label them. We don't concretize them. And then there's nothing we can really do about them or with them. And that kind of became the premise of my doctoral dissertation and my book, which um, is where I I ran these psychoanalytic interviews uh, with 10 granddaughters of Holocaust survivors. And I focused specifically on Israeli and American women. I interviewed 10. They were two-hour interviews that were transcribed and analyzed in depth. Um, And we spoke about their personal Holocaust knowledge and kind of family memories and experiences. And each one of them sort of outlined their, you know, her reactions to this legacy. And it was just incredibly powerful to sit with them and hear these stories and pass through the generations and how resilient and courageous they were to do this and to really look at it directly. Obviously, some stories had significantly more silence, kind of this unspoken quality, like in my family, others were kind of passed along in tremendous detail, which has its own effect. But the common denominator was kind of how they each trace these, I call it trauma trails, and that's not my word, but it's kind of the, those echoes, the residues of our history that kind of come alive in our present life, right? So whether it's in eating and diet, nutritional behaviors, whether it's how we raise our children or in our spirituality versus view on science, right? Or history and just what do those trauma trails do? What does that history do? There's been a lot of research, not my own, that's come subsequently or in recent years around what's passed on genetically in terms of intergenerational trauma and those markers that you can see actually in DNA. And so that's an interesting kind of counterpart 
um, that I've been following, and I'm happy to share that with you, Connor. But this was the most personal work, right? And it, it touched on all of my own kind of background. And it gave this real moment of connection and openness and this invitation to kind of delve in it further with these women. Amazing. That is extremely powerful. And just to have that in your family and have it have those stories to pass down and in this collective. And I think it's so important to to have that connection. And I think it's honestly probably made you a lot stronger as a person. Um, I don't know you obviously personally, but I, I can just tell how that you are a, fa a very fascinating individual. And um, I would love to meet you uh, one day and hopefully we can get hey, you to I a, um, we can get you to a millennium Alliance assembly. I think, I think you, you'd appreciate it and you'd honestly get a lot out of it. Yeah. Let's uh, talk about maybe some modern day issues mm -hmm. that are arising that have a big impact on our society you know, we're living in a crazy time. I don't know if you could agree mm -hmm. with that. Mm -hmm. It's just so much going on in just this country and around the world. I kind of find it fascinating that how so many people have different opinions on ways we should go to go about issues, sort of like climate change and gun control and the hunger crisis and epidemics or the pandemic. Like maybe we could start mm -hmm. there. Because uh -huh. that probably had a big, really big impact on how people, the way people think and feel. And just the fact that uh -huh. there are, there was a great divide in that some, some people didn't even take it seriously. How, walk me through someone's thought process of how it could be that divided. How do we get there? Why isn't it all, everybody at least is on the same page of common knowledge and and factual information? Or is it just disinformation has too much of a role in today's society now? You know, I think that's a really good question. And it's one we get a lot at Cognovi Labs in terms of can we identify misinformation and disinformation? And, you know, the way we usually answer that is that we, we can't, because first of all, what might be real information for me might not be real information for someone else. Right. But and second of all, second of all, most and more importantly is, you know, if one piece of real information is not emotionally resonating, but another piece of disinformation is emotionally resonating and is activating us or inspiring us. Right. We want to know that we want to know the emotional effect that it has. And so it might be real. It might be not real. And that's important. But what's the outcome? What's the consequence of that information? What do we do with it? Right now, it's kind of can look at that individually or we can look at that collectively. But I think to go kind of broader than just information, disinformation or pandemic specific, people love simple stories about human experience, right? Like I'm going to enter a relationship and I'm going to get rid of my sense of isolation or I'm going to spend time meditating. And then I'm not going to feel stressed anymore, right? Or, or with virtual reality in the metaverse, I'm going to have my own, create my own virtual reality, and then I'm going to increase my sense of control. Right? And, and it's, it's just not that simple, right? I mean, human emotion and behavior are just a lot more complicated than that. Um, and we bring so much of ourselves into it um, in terms of the pandemic, you know, 
a billion people on this planet now live with a mental health issue. And, you know, we're struggling to meet the needs despite, you know, all the virtual and in-person support that's kind of become available. And there's so much around that kind of emotional awareness and agility, like how flexible and how open are we to emotional experiencing? And it's really hard to watch sometimes, right? We have such an inclination to simplify and to divide and bucket things. We want to say kind of my, Mm. this emotion is positive. This one is negative, right? And so I can kind of compartmentalize it and have clarity and control over that. But it's such a dangerous kind of approach because the words positivity and negativity, you know, I was kind of recently describing, they just split the domain. People start to feel very dehumanized. You know, they're asked to present a certain positive emotional picture, whatever that looks like. And it it kind of evolves from there into feeling not real, this kind of Pollyanna toxic positivity of our culture. Right. And, and it, it doesn't work either when we kind of avoid or repress something painful. There's this really good chance that it's only going to continue to grow. Right. It has right. the opposite effect. And so people become start to feel more disengaged. Companies are becoming more disconnected from their employees, kind of driving or hiring uh, people who are going to kind of feed that narrative. Um, And so I think there's a lot of that happening. Uh, It's not new. There's so many current stressors, but this inclination to define things, this kind of deterministic approach to have an answer, a solution, a clarity, uh, rather than embracing uncertainty or a range of emotion or difficulty and pain and struggle and really welcoming that, tolerating it, allowing it to be there, you know, and then we can kind of do something with it. Yeah. So I don't know if that even answers your question. There's no. about five tangents in there. No, I think you answered it in, in, in multiple ways too. Two plus years of, of living a certain way overnight and then, you know, having to kind of crawl out of that isolation. And it left a lot of people, I think, feeling in a place where they've never been before, which is mm-hmm. lonely in a big city. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I know for one, like it took me a while to, to start going back out and and because no one knew there was never a green light of, you know, here you go. Now you can continue on with what you were doing in February of 2020 before it all shut down. What do you think has been the most critical? I know mental health is a big one. You even mentioned that. And I know you do a lot of research and a lot of work on mental health and the mental well-being of people. But out of the pandemic, what has been the greatest effect on on a person? It could be anywhere, but specifically, I know you're you're, you know, we're in we're in the New York metropolitan area. What has been the biggest effect on people as a result of of this pandemic isolation? Mm -hmm. I feel I have two answers, two parts to that answer. The first is just kind of my sense of, of course, everything was completely turned upside down and it became extreme and it escalated so many people's struggles and issues already, both kind of at the height of the pandemic, and then as you're describing, coming out of the pandemic and kind of re-entering society and uh, seeing people in person again, all of that, and not having that clarity, right, of what 
mm. when and how and why and you know what just happened here like are we <laughs> exactly. processing this <laughs> right and and who's leading us in that effort i mean it's right. not the cdc as we know right not nothing against the cdc but rochelle walensky recently herself kind of described their problematic messaging really throughout the pandemic and what is that about right why can't we get that kind of message and support people um, in a way that is effective. And I really do see it as going back to kind of that emotional experience of, can we tolerate talking about that deep isolation of being in that big city, right? That loneliness. So many people flooded social media to talk about that. Why were they going there? Where else were they going to go, right? And yeah, I, I've written about that and kind of that unfiltered stream of content that goes online. But could we, can we use that or can we kind of understand that for what it is, which is this real desire to connect and reconnect with people? The outcome, I mean, I, you know, I saw this specifically in one of the analyses that I did around trauma narratives, that there was just this explosion of very personal sharing of individual trauma narratives online. And it became almost a forum for healing when people are supporting one another. And that, you know, it it can trigger further emotions and uh, other trauma responses. But also there was a real kind of support of people coming together and speaking about something that can be unspeakable, right? Like I'm not supposed to feel this lonely and the depth of that pain and suffering, right? And so it makes it speakable. Um, it brings people together in that way. Mm-hmm. And then there's like, oh, there's an empowerment that comes from that and an emotional intelligence, not to throw in a buzzword there, but you know, <laughs> it's, uh, it's gotten a, a lot of focus coming out of the pandemic, mental health, emotional intelligence. And I think it's where we need to focus. It's, it's exactly what, where we need to do the work. I think you bring up a really good point too, in terms of social media, not to say it, it it's um you know let me admit, i could probably get your thoughts on social media as a whole and the, the effects it's had <laughs> on everyone the need to check in instead uh-huh. of checking out i think we do a lot more of that these days and that's that could be affecting everyone's well-being but social media though you're right is a platform where everyone is going on to share their thoughts and you posted something really interesting um, this is right after the unfortunate shooting in Nivaldi, the school down there. And you posted about, or Cognovi Labs, the gun control emotion re- emotional reaction from the day prior then to the day after. And what is sort of perhaps this ongoing problem that these shootings and these mass shootings, they happen and then we talk about them and then we wait for the next one to happen. Mm-hmm. And there's actually nothing that's, to me, considerable enough and actionable enough that is it constitutes something as, as a word of progress in that area. Mm-hmm. How do we get behind this? How does Congress, how, how can they react a different way, not only, not only passing actual legislation, but sort of understanding how people feel about this Mm -hmm. and that perhaps more disgust brought to the light but also hope that we can actually we are a country that can pass gun legislation we can get we can get to the bottom of this and we can actually fix it i mean i think you nail it uh really i mean i 
what is it that we can do? And I think, as you say, how are people feeling? And therefore, how can we make a change? How can we motivate people, individuals, groups, you know, organizations in response? And so, you know, when I put out that Uvalde analysis, it was my own kind of exploration into how people are feeling in the aftermath of this. Everyone was talking about the shooting. Everyone appears and sounds up in arms about it, but there's a familiarity to it. So if we measure the emotions, do we see a shift over time or does it look frighteningly similar uh, month to month or year to year? And so that was really the question driving that. What are people feeling and are they activated and motivated to do something about it, right? And so that that's a very key part of what we do is kind of uh, mapping out the emotions into what's called action tendencies. So how do those emotions come together to activate or deactivate people? And if people are ready to act, are they kind of looking to withdraw or reject or avoid, or are they more kind of in a considering state where they're observing and weighing this new option, or are they more embracing already where they're approaching and kind of moving towards or maybe they're kind of in this all-out tackle, right? They're already chasing. They're really coming after this change. But in a bigger context, you know, we see this issue. I mean, social media can give us that information, right? A lot of people are unwilling to discuss, for example, the conditions with healthcare providers, right? Whether that's mental health conditions or physical conditions. Mm-hmm. And so we can't, there's all of this kind of underreporting of issues. And we don't necessarily then have the effective programs, you know, to implement in response to that. Um, But those same people may feel totally at ease sharing their symptoms and afflictions and perspectives on social media. You know, Suicide Watch subreddit is one of them that comes to mind, you know, pops in my head. Um, It's anonymous, right? And so you can just kind of go for it and put it all out there in your 280 characters or however much it is now. (laughs) Um, But Yeah, in general, you know, going online and communicating and people are looking to be heard. They want, you know, we get this question like, what do you mean you're looking at, you know, other people's posts? Well, they're out there and they're they're looking to connect and engage and be a part of something. Um, So even though social media is absolutely linked to, you know, there's so many systemic issues there linked to worsening self-esteem, perfection seeking, especially amongst teenage girls. But and, and that is a real problem, but there's all, it's also an outlet for this self-expression and there's this kind of evolving role where we might really utilize it kind of in a way for collective experience and healing in a way. And I totally agree with you there. Wrapping up with these questions, it's, um, I just have one more to ask you because as a, as a country, the current climate of the two political parties and what emotion best characterizes the Democratic Party? And in what emotion best <clears throat> categorizes the Republican Party? Because I think they're on two different spectrums with two very different fundamental values now that it's sort of interesting to see where does the base lie in terms of emotions? Yeah, I would love to run that analysis, Connor. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a little hard to answer it kind of globally that way about an entire party, right? And, and that obviously changes over time. But I think the key is to kind of dive into the specifics. What are the specific emotions around specific issues at specific times, right? And not that there aren't these kind of more global 
descriptions. And we, we do a lot of that work when we try to understand a population. What are the morals and values and what's the culture like there, right? Which is incredibly important, um, but it's also, it, sometimes we don't know necessarily kind of the moral, rational foundation of someone's behavior, right? We have more, it's almost a narrative we kind of create after the fact to explain behavior. And, and not always, but this, it can really kind of play that role. Whereas, you know, we kind of use intuition and emotion to react and then we're kind of catching up to explain why. So there's this ideological, moral, foundation, rational foundation of behavior. And then there's that kind of more emotional take to understanding it. But I would just say, you know, that that kind of, what do we do about it? That mutuality, right? How do we then engage people when there are such splits and such divides? It's really just, just as we don't want to split the emotional domain into good or bad, positive or negative, you know, that goes for or broader for groups as well of trying to include as as much complexity as possible. So complexity of voices, complexity of backgrounds, complexity of emotion, um, and working towards that kind of mutuality and coexistence. So sorry to not answer, you know, the specific, but you know, I have a lot of a lot of feelings around that. Yeah, of course. And you did answer at least, at least in my opinion about it's easy to jump to conclusions, but mm-hmm. taking the time to sort of figure it all out and and run the analysis. I I'm I'd be interested to hear what those results are. <laughs> and uh, let's so set keep, something up, Connor. So keep me posted on that. Yeah. I want to thank you for your time today. I, I don't want to let you go before I know like what maybe the future holds for you. I I it's it's incredible what you're doing. I'm very fascinated by it. And in this world that we live in today where data tells us so much and perhaps mm-hmm. so many organizations have an overload of data that some sometimes they don't even want, know what to do with it. It's mm-hmm. really cool to see a company who is utilizing both aspects of data and psychology. Where do you see um, perhaps not only the Cognobi Labs and the great work that's going on there, but perhaps your future, what you what maybe things that you want to accomplish, if there's anything on the horizon for you, I would love to know. Yeah, it's a great question. Um, you know, in some ways, I'm just kind of finding my way. I've kind of land in this interview <laughs> and <laughs> uh, see where it takes us. But, Who is um, it, right? <laughs> exactly. You know, this this emotion work that's required, I really see kind of my future around that. I have my, you know, I see clients in private practice, and but here at, at Cognovi in this kind of more global collective way to really uh, bring that to the forefront. Because when it comes to emotion work, it's this paradox that the, there will just be discomfort involved, right? And, and it's critical really for us to tolerate and open ourselves up to that. At Cognovi, the the AI is kind of, it's been trained to sort of look at it from that way to understand that people experience diverse emotions and that embracing that full range is really productive and healthy. You know, in, in my field, in the mental health profession, there is this kind of emotion AI and data and technology is, in some ways, it's really been underutilized. 
And we rely on, you know, clinical interviews and self-report measurement scales, um, one to 10 or one to seven. And we use that even to track risk, right? Suicide risk or other issues. So if there's a way that we can measure a person's emotional and behavioral baseline, as well as, you know, movements away from that baseline so that we can kind of make a difference, then I definitely want to be a part of that work. Um, so that's, that's why I'm here. And that's where I'm hoping the company continues to go. I can't wait to hear more about it. And uh, Dr. Nareet Pisano, thank you so much for your time today. It was a real treat for me to get to talk to you and get you on this podcast. I know it's been a long time coming. So <laughs> um, I'm very just excited that I, I got you on the podcast. I can't wait for the Millennium listeners to check out this episode. I really thank you for not only your time, but allowing me to listen to your incredible story. You are and probably will be an inspiration for a lot of people. And maybe you don't know that now, but you are. And uh, thank you uh, again. Thank you so for- much. Uh, thank uh, sharing you. All, no thank you for just sharing all the great things that are are happening at cognovi labs that perhaps not more people should know about and i w- would hope that eventually down the line maybe another six months we'll get to um we'll get to a part two to this because i would love to continue the conversation yeah i would love that and i really appreciate you having me and i mean so effectively making this space to chat openly you know and so that's I really appreciate that. And that's a rarity, you know, so it's, uh, it's very important what you're doing. And uh, I'm very grateful to you. And well, we appreciate you. So thanks so much, Nirit, and to everyone else at Cognovi for making this happen.